So we're going to be in, in Esther 6 this morning. If you want to go ahead and find that, you can. That's fine. Uh, but I wanted to rehash a bit of where we've been so far. I know that some of you may not have been around uh, for the last few weeks. I know that some of you might be visiting. I know that sometimes it's just hard, even if you've been around the whole time, to put all of the details together, to not forget different things, because there's a lot of moving parts to this story. But it all begins with this king named Xerxes, who's immensely significant historically. Uh, you've probably heard his name before. And, and Xerxes is important. He's this figure in chapter 1 that, that, that's shown as, as just grand and glorious and powerful. But all of that has kind of come into question because his wife has essentially rejected him. She first rejects him, and so he rejects her, has her sent away, and now he's in the process of finding another wife. This is where Esther comes into the story and her cousin, Mordecai. Mordecai, a lot of people don't realize, is an important Jewish man by his own right. Uh, it's something that we kind of read over, but Mordecai is said to be a son of Kish. Right? He's said to come from the line of Saul. Mordecai is royalty, but most people just don't realize it, right? He comes from this line of Israel's kings. But now he lives as a humble foreigner in Persia. Like that, that's all he has going for him at this point. He's raising his orphaned cousin, Esther, because her parents died. And Esther is, is one of those women who finds herself pulled into the orbit of the king. She's one of those women that, that he's considering to be his wife. And her story is complicated. We all have to acknowledge Esther's story is complicated because she is... All at one, you know, like the same time, she's this vulnerable teenager who's being forced into the bedroom of one of the most powerful men in the world at the time. She has no choice in the matter, and she's put into a, a very difficult position. And at the same time, the story wants us to see the complex nature of her personality, of who she is, that she does recognize the opportunity this gives her, right? She recognizes otherwise she wouldn't really have much agency in her life. And so she sees it as an opportunity. She sees that this is something she has to embrace. And so she does. I mean, her, her cousin, Mordecai, tells her she should hide her identity as a Jewish person altogether. And so she embraces her identity as a Persian woman and as a queen. That's what she does. But as we saw last week, eventually that becomes a bit of an issue. Because now... There's this character in the story we'll spend more time on today, Haman. He's the, the villain. He's the person in the story who's the problem, the antagonist. Haman wants every Jewish person in Persia gone simply because one Jewish person in Persia has offended him. Mordecai refuses to bow to him, if you remember. And it's when Mordecai brings her this news that Esther realizes she can no longer hide who she is. The king has to know that she's a Jewish woman. It becomes more important since apparently they're about to be eradicated in Persia. She recognizes in this moment that she has to become a voice for this voiceless people. She has to confront her culture rather than embrace it. And it's a, a painful sort of thing that she's learning. And if you remember, as we finished last week, Esther has made this decision. She says, if I perish, then I perish. 
The sense she has is that I will either take this to the king and die because I offend him in the process of confronting this matter, or I'll die because I fail at it. Because Haman insists that everyone who's a Jewish person has to be eradicated. If I perish, I perish, she says. In the background, the whole time, there's Haman. Like this, this shadowy figure, he's lurking in the dark. He's a problem. And we haven't spent a whole lot of time with Haman so far in the series, and today we'll do that. And if you know anything about Haman, you know, like, this is what Haman has always wanted. Haman always wants to be the center of attention. He wants to be talked about. He wants to be known. He needs to be seen and appreciated. This is what Haman wants. So back to chapter 2 a couple weeks ago, Mordecai thwarts this assassination attempt against the king. He stops it from happening. And if you remember, like, I don't know how you were feeling about it. After chapter 2, if you've read Esther, which you should do, by the way, it's only 10 chapters. It would take you 30 minutes this afternoon, I'm pretty sure. At the end of chapter 2, you're expecting he just saved the king's life. What else is waiting for Mordecai but like ticker tape parade, you know? Like he's a hero. He did it. But then you read chapter 3. This is how it goes. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman. After these events, meaning after Mordecai saved the life of the king, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. And it goes on to say that the king even commanded that people were to bow down to Haman. This is how elevated he is, right? We're expecting in this moment, having heard the story, that Mordecai's name is about to be the one we read in chapter 3. After these events, the king honored Mordecai, the son of of Jair, the son of Kish, Mordecai the Jew, was elevated by the king. No, that's not what we get. Instead, we get Haman. From the start, there's this sense that something is wrong here. Haman comes into the story and something is bad wrong here. Even his name sounds bad. The Hebrews do this a lot. They, they, they want you to know his name and they want to continue to emphasize his name over and over again because they know that a Hebrew listener will know that the word Haman in Hebrew, sounds a lot like their word, wrath. His name just sounds bad. You hear it and you know something is wrong. Haman is that figure. You also know that he's called an Agagite. Now that's this super obscure reference in the Old Testament that no one expects you to know. The Hebrew readers would have remembered it well, though. Agag was uh, one of the kings, not of Israel, but of the Amalekites. We're not expecting you to remember the kings of the Amalekites. But what's important about the Amalekites is that they were among that, that group of people, some of the earliest to attack Israel. At one of the most vulnerable points in the history of Israel, they have left Egypt. They are now in the wilderness. They're moving toward the promised land. They're vulnerable. They're fragile in this moment, and the Amalekites come for them. They threaten the existence of Israel, and God saves them. But the sense you get of Haman is that just as the Amalekites threatened Israel, Israel, this man, Haman, is going to threaten the existence of God's people. That's what's coming. He just sounds bad from the start. And for some reason, Xerxes, maybe it's because he spends his entire life drinking and sleeping around, he's not paying much attention to the character of the people who he puts around him. He chooses to honor Haman. 
not realizing the man that he's honoring, that he's raised to this position, is threatening the life of his hero, threatening the life of the man who saved his. Something is wrong, right? That's what it's meant to suggest. Haman has been elevated. Everybody bows to him except Mordecai. If I need that other microphone, y'all just tell me. Anytime it keeps popping, y'all just let me know. It doesn't matter to Haman that he is so highly valued by the king. It doesn't matter that everyone else in the city bows down to him. His ego is so fragile that just a single Jewish man refusing to do what everybody else is doing, it's enough to throw him into like a nervous breakdown. A murderous plot against all of them just because he won't bow. And it's this news that calls Esther out of hiding. The very thing Mordecai has told her she must do, now she knows she can't do. This is what she's about to risk her life for. And our passage sits in the middle of all of this building tension and uncertainty. She's, she's in this really hard spot where she's trying to figure out how she's supposed to tell the king all of these things. What is exactly is she supposed to do? And so she gives a banquet for the king, and she tells him, I want you to come back. I'm going to give another banquet for you and Haman. Remember, Haman is just basking in his own glory, bathing in it. He wants all the banquets all the time. This is who Haman is, okay? And there's this tension that's rising in the background that even Esther is not fully understanding. Because as excited as he is, by all of this. It all comes crashing down when Haman leaves the first banquet, headed home for the night. And who does he see but Mordecai? And Mordecai, even though his life is being threatened, Mordecai refuses to bow to him again. And the banquets, the honor of the king, all of the titles, all of the bowing from everybody else in the city, it's just not enough for Haman. He realizes that thing that we all know at some level. We may not have learned it yet, but we know it to be true objectively. It just is. It's never enough. And that's certainly true for Haman, right? And so now Haman insists Mordecai has to die sooner rather than later. He can't die when the rest of the Jewish people are going to be exterminated. No, he'll have to die sooner. And so he's going to come to the king to ask for his execution even sooner, right? It's worse than Esther even realizes. The situation just keeps intensifying, right? There's this building tension the whole time. Things are getting worse and worse. And then you get to chapter 6, and everything changes. Yeah, y'all just bring me that microphone. It's going to drive me crazy. Chapter 6 is like the, the reversal. It's where everything that has been going on is, is undone. Everything that was a threat against God's people changes. It's this incredible thing. And it, what's funny about it all is it all comes down to sleep. Of all the things, it comes down to sleep. The king is sleeping when this all happens. So you can open there to, with me to, uh, to chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. That night the king could not sleep, 
And so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigtana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. And the king said, who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole that he had set up for him. And his attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. And when Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man that the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? And so he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor. Have them bring a royal robe that the king has worn and a horse that the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on a horse through the city, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe, get the horse, and do just as you have suggested. Dramatic pause for Mordecai the Jew. The one who sits at the king's gate, do not neglect anything that you have recommended. It's not what he's expecting to hear. It's not what we're expecting to hear. Here is another one of those moments, right? Where we're expecting someone else's name. We're expecting that the king, Haman is expecting that the king is going to honor him all over again. There's this sense that that's the name. Haman is expecting that name to be spoken. But just like in chapter 3, something is upside down here for Haman. Something is being reversed. God is changing something. Something powerful is happening. And now it's Mordecai's name. He is the one who's going to be honored. He's the one who's going to be exalted. It's, it's meant to make you laugh. Like you're meant to do that. You're meant to feel this sense of like, of course you deserve this and we're all laughing at you now. That's the point. It's meant to be comedy. The, the thing we have to wrestle with is like, how does it get so comically, hysterically bad for Haman? How does he let it get this far? And then behind that question, you just kind of have to ask, like, why is Haman the way he is? Like, why, why does he do all of this? Like, why is he so hateful? Why is he driven to such terrible means? Why would he do such a thing? And that is meant to stir you to a, a deeper question, a harder question, which is, why are we the way we are? Why are you this way? Why do you do things this way? Why am I this way? Because what, what drives Haman is the same thing that drives us. 
What's pushing Haman to do these sorts of things, to these desperate means? It's the same thing that drives us. A need that we all feel at some level, some of us maybe to a greater, more noticeable degree, some of us to a lesser degree. We all feel this, this need to be seen at some level, this need to be acknowledged, maybe even to be valued or to be celebrated. Like We want that. There, there's a part of us that wants that. And let me clarify like, I'm not talking about self-deprecation here. I'm not encouraging us toward that. I'm not talking about false modesty here. This is something else, right? We're all created with this inherent value, an inherent worth because we're created in the image of God. That's one of the most foundational things we believe. Genesis 1 and 2 says that, that God makes us good, that we have this value, right? There's something in each of us that's worth being honored, worth being celebrated, worth being valued, right? That's true. But Haman needs more than just that. Haman evaluates, assesses his value solely based on comparison. He's always weighing and measuring himself against everybody else in the room. And that probably sounds familiar to you. Because you've lived that at some level. We all know this. Haman only has value relative to the value of those around him, right? And having value is so important to Haman in as much that that means by having value, others have less value than him. Haman needs to win, in essence. Haman needs to know that there's always someone beneath his feet. He's always on top. He lives this way. His entire life is driven by this idea Value, worth, and honor, it only matters in as much as it keeps him at the top and everyone else at the bottom. It's not just about winning. What he enjoys most about winning is that everybody else has to lose. That's Haman, right? And you know someone like this. Like, that's what you're confronted with. I think as we read this story, inevitably, we can't help but think of people we know like this. Like there's this, sometimes for it, like for each of us, I, I think there's like a list of people we have known, maybe that we're actively dealing with, somebody you work with, someone in your family, someone in your church, whatever it might be, like some friend. It could be anything. Like we have this list of people, it seems like. And what the story is confronting us with is like the longer your list is of those people like Haman, the greater the chances are that you are one of the people on that list. You're one of the people on somebody else's list. The longer your list is, the more offended you are by other people's pride, the more likely you might be prideful. I remember hearing Tim Keller say something similar years ago in a sermon. That the more people we would accuse of being prideful increases the chances more and more that we are prideful. The, the idea that I could accuse someone of this that I could keep holding that over their head, that continually keeps me in a place of superiority above them. And we don't even realize it. We don't even recognize that's what we're doing so often. What drives us is the same thing that drives Haman. We have something in common with him, right? And Haman shows us the tragedy of that life. Haman is one of those people who has lived his life by the American dream. He has scratched and clawed and twisted and manipulated and done whatever was necessary to succeed. And he finds that he succeeds far quicker than probably he ever dreamed of, right? He gets to the top much more quickly than he ever imagined. He gets everything he ever dreamed of. 
and it's a nightmare, right? We all know this to be true. It's not enough. He realizes that it won't satisfy him. The crushing reality sets in that he schemed and he has manipulated his way all the way to the top, and now he has to keep scheming and manipulating to stay there. He realizes the whole house of cards is just like falling down continually. There's nothing he can do, right? Honor has come quickly to Haman, but it cannot last. It cannot endure. Haman is the picture of this, the warning about this, the tragedy of this kind of life, a life lived this way, this self-centered existence. That's who Haman is. But again, I mean, from a worldly perspective, things have worked out pretty good for Haman. He's, he's at the top. Say what you want to about Haman. People bow to him when he walks by. The king listens to him, even though he is the way he is. Mordecai's situation is more painful. Mordecai's situation is the picture of the people of God. He's a man who is captured, taken into exile in a foreign land. He's forced to live a life that he would not otherwise have lived. And the most noble thing he ever does in Persia goes unrecognized. He does something good, right? This is the sort of thing you would think people would want to celebrate, that they would want to know about. And instead, it's written down, but seemingly forgotten otherwise. This is, this is what Mordecai has lived. And the text says, it doesn't say this outright, but we know because it's giving us these little time stamps along the way. Five years elapse between the time Mordecai saves the life of the king and when what we're reading in chapter 6 is happening. Five years, Mordecai is waiting. And Mordecai is no different than you and me. Like, you have to assume that he has come to the conclusion that he's missed his opportunity. Like, that his life is not going to get better. Things are going to continue to be really painful and difficult. He had that opportunity, and it passed him by. Similar to, like, Joseph's story. Pharaoh has forgotten. The baker has forgotten. Nobody knows he feels this. He lives with this. Until one night the king can't sleep. It, it all comes down to sleep. Like, how many stories do you know where the climax is somebody sleeping? Like, the big turn in the story. This is what's happening here. Normally it happens in some, like, grand arena. It happens on a battlefield. It happens in, like, a dramatic court scene which are nothing like court in real life, by the way. It's much more boring. I learned this with Alex once. Court is, is not very dramatic, um, and it moves very slow. It's painful for that reason. But that's normally where the climax happens. And instead, for Mordecai, for Esther, for the people of God, it comes down to, like, indigestion or something, like, his kids started crying, and he couldn't get back to sleep. Some of you know that feeling. Some of you know it all too well right now. But he cannot sleep. And we're not given a reason why he can't sleep. But remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. The text never says it outright. The text never even names God. 
much less tells us that God is the one who made this happen, but we're left to make that conclusion on our own because this chain of coincidences, it just keeps stacking up. You begin to recognize it's just undeniably, unmistakably the hand of God. God is the one who's writing on the wall. This is the finger of God. God is the one who's doing all of this. God won't let Xerxes sleep. He cannot get back to sleep. There's no other explanation. And the sense that you get is that if Xerxes was sleeping when all of this happened, the implication would be that so is everybody else. Mordecai is asleep. Esther's all of the heroes in the story, all the people that you might give credit to for what is about to, to unfold, all the people you might say caused this to happen, changed the world, really turned this situation around. All of those people are asleep, except Xerxes, because God has woken him up. It's all just sleep. And it's clear, God is the one who's waking him up. The people of Israel have told the story this way for so long. Hundreds of years they've been telling the story this way. It's written down this way so that we will know what changed the whole situation, what reversed everything, what undid the threat against God's people, what saved them from death all over again was not the obedience of Mordecai. It was not the courage of Esther. And it's not the mercy of Xerxes who decides that that's not right. It's the mercy of God. And it always is. This is what they're trying to emphasize. This is the work of God. This strange scenario that's playing out. Everything is changing and Xerxes is just laying there in bed. Because the way it unfolds, again, the coincidences, they just keep stacking up, right? While he's laying there, awake, cannot sleep, he says, you know what? Read me a bedtime story. Bring to me the annals of Persia. Bring to me the chronicles of my reign. Right? I want you to let that sink in for just a second. Because as arrogant as Haman is, the reason Haman and Xerxes get along so well is because they're both severely arrogant. Like, Xerxes is the hero of his own bedtime stories. Forget Peter Pan, I just want to hear about me. Like, that, that's the whole thing. Like, this is his bedtime story. Like, imagine Xerxes with a nightlight, okay? It's a, a little piece of stained glass. It's a portrait of him with a candle behind it. That's Xerxes. This is what comforts him as he goes to bed each night. He's that arrogant. But there's, there's something more, right? As they begin to read the story of Persian history, the story of his reign, where is it do they come to but, but five years ago? The story of this man, Mordecai, an obscure Jewish figure and the way he saved his life. The very man that Haman, apparently, has already come to the palace. Like, he has left his home. He has woken up at some point and decided that he has to be there. He wants to be the first face that the king sees when he wakes up in the morning. So he can say, hey, we, we've got to get rid of Mordecai, right? The very man that, that Haman is scheming to kill at this very moment the king happens to be reading about as he lays there in insomnia. This is 
more than, than coincidence. We're left to conclude that God is doing something. God has awakened the king so that he can begin to recognize that the man whose life is being threatened, that he might execute tomorrow otherwise, is the man who saved his life, right? And Xerxes is just stunned, right? He's like overwhelmed when he realizes all of this. He's beginning to put the pieces together. Xerxes is starting to make sense of all that's happening, of who Haman really is. And so he asks this question, who is in the court? And they say, who happens to be in the court right now, king, but Haman himself? He's just arrived in the outer courts. So he brings Haman in. Right? His trusted advisor, the honorable Haman. And he says, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? And because Haman is so arrogant that this year for Halloween he's dressing up as himself, right? Like, like he, he and Xerxes are buds. Like they, they function this way. They cannot see the world any other way but through the lens of whatever it is they want or desire at the moment. And Haman cannot imagine he's talking about anyone but himself. And so Haman goes all in. It's embarrassing how bad this is. We're all sitting there sensing it. We can feel the tension. We're embarrassed for Haman. We're uncomfortable, right? We feel this for Haman, but Haman can't feel it. He doesn't recognize it. You read verses 8 and 9. He says... Have them bring a royal robe, not just a royal robe, but one that the king has worn. And have them bring the royal horse, one that the king himself has, has ridden. And have them entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. And then lead him through the streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor, right? Haman says, in essence, grant to me your authority. Give to me your splendor and your majesty. Let everyone know that there is no one in this land like me. This is what he desires. He goes all in. And it's uncomfortable. Because the king says, great idea. Go and do just as you have suggested. How long that pause must have been for Mordecai. Go and lead your enemy through the streets, dressed in a royal robe, and proclaim before him that he is the man the king delights to honor. And you, you're just a noble prince. Nothing more. You will forever be beneath his feet. Like Haman is the picture of Jesus' words in Luke. I don't know if you guys remember Luke 14. It was one of those like I learned as a kid early on. It just stuck with me. Luke 14, 11, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus says, take the lowest seat at the table. This is the life you're called to as a disciple, right? And Haman is the picture of what happens when you attempt the other way around. He's the one who has exalted himself and who is being humbled. It's bad. It makes me think of, uh, of Proverbs 3. James actually quotes it. We're going to be in James in our next series. Uh, but Proverbs 3.34 uh, makes this statement. God opposes the proud. God resists the proud. But he pours his grace out on the humble. It's something that people of God just celebrate over and over again. Because it's kind of their story. 
They've lived this life of humility, sometimes unintentionally, right? It's not necessarily something they've chosen for themselves. It's just the nature of their circumstances. And there's this hope found in knowing that God resists the proud. God resists those who have exalted themselves, who've elevated themselves. But he pours his grace on the humble, right? Haman is a man who, who scratches and claws and manipulates and twists every little scenario he ever finds himself in so that he can... He can succeed so that others can see him as impressive and important and valuable. This is the life he has lived. Mordecai, on the other hand, has to wait patiently. He waits humbly. For five years, he's just waiting. Haman, living his best life now, whatever you want to call it. Haman is... is living the life that Mordecai is aware he could be living. And all of us wrestle with it at some point. Like, we can seek honor. We can seek success. We can seek to be seen in whatever way it is we have in our minds we need to be seen, right? We can seek all of this. We can build the world around us, self-centered, motivated only by our own dreams and desires and goals with our five-year and ten-year plans, our ideas of what our life is going to look like when we're 60 some odd years old, whatever. Like we can build our lives around these things, what we want for us. But what Haman is showing us is that God desires and dreams better things for us than we can desire for ourselves. That everything we've ever desired for ourselves was less than he was trying to offer us already if we would just wait to receive it but we scratch and we claw and we manipulate and we grind and we work for something less. This is the story of Haman. I was thinking about uh, my friend Samuel this week. Some of you guys have heard me talk about Samuel. He's this amazing pastor uh, in northern Ghana. Uh, he pastors this church uh, in a little village called Azaloko. He's one of Ben Stanton's and, and Rachel Stanton's best friends. Um, and the time I spent with him this summer was, was really rich. And one of the, my favorite stories that he was telling me about, you know, how he had come to be a pastor and his whole life, he was just telling me all kinds of things. And one of the things he's telling me about was how he met his wife, how they got married. His wife's name is Chantal. Uh, they're both originally from Burkina Faso, which is north of Ghana. Uh, but they met each other living in Cote d'Ivoire, or the, the Ivory Coast. While they're living... Uh, in the Ivory Coast together working, uh, they decide they want to get married. And so Samuel decides that he has to, they want to live in Burkina, so they're going to go back home. But before they can go back home and set up their life there, he's got to go and figure out what he's going to do for work. He's got to figure out where they're going to live. And so he says to Chantal, I'm going to go and try to figure things out. You stay here. I'll be back in a matter of weeks, a few weeks. And I'll never forget Chantal starts laughing uh, as he's saying all of this. And she interrupts him and she says, it took three years. Like three years. And, she's, and like she kept going. She's like, and this is before, you know, we all had easy cell phone access or like WhatsApp. Like, like we couldn't talk with each other. It wasn't something where we knew what was going on. Like he didn't have the money to get back to her. He didn't have a way to get back to her. He'd had the money to get there, but not to get back. He was in a much more complicated position than he realized he would be. And it took three years until she found the money and was able to get to Burkina. And she found him in the place where their families were both from. It's this picture of like sometimes the promise takes longer than we expect. 
Sometimes these things that, that God is offering us, sometimes these things we know are supposed to happen, they just feel upside down, like things are not going the way they're supposed to. Sometimes the promise takes longer than expected, but the sense that we get from this story is that you cannot substitute a lesser thing in the place of the promise. Just wait on the promise. Like this is the nature of the people of God, living in exile. They've lived here long enough to assume that God has forgotten his promises to them. Either their failure or his negligence, whatever it might be, has led to this moment and there's nothing that can be done for us. And so they, you know, can adopt their own means. They can choose a different life. They can blend into their culture. They can build their lives around whatever it is they want to. They can substitute a lesser thing or they can wait on the promise. And if you think about it, like that has been the story of God's people the whole time. Like all the way back, it's hard for me to, to think about the Old Testament and not just keep spitting out these stories. Think about Jacob. Jacob is a man who wants to marry Rachel. His soon-to-be father-in-law says, seven years and she's yours. You work for me for seven years and you can marry Rachel and he has to work for 14. He's lied to. He's manipulated. Now, he kind of deserves it, but seven years turns into 14, right? There's more, right? One story after another, right? You think about Israel in the wilderness. They lived there 40 years. It should have taken them 11 days to get from Egypt to Canaan takes 11 days and they're there 40 years some because of their failure because of their sin and they have to wait Mordecai is waiting five years for the king to finally remember what he's done for his people to be seen as worth something, as, as valuable. Mordecai waits five years for what Haman apparently receives overnight. Everything comes easy for Haman, but Mordecai has to wait five years. And as I was like sitting there thinking through all these stories, Joseph, again, I mentioned him earlier, another story where a man is just waiting and waiting, but you cannot help but think of Jesus. Like, however you want to see Jesus' life, whether you're talking about all 33 years of it or just the three years that he's doing his ministry, Jesus spends a lot of time waiting on people to finally recognize him for who he is. There's that statement he makes in, in Mark 6 that just like haunts us. A prophet is not without honor. Prophets are always honored, Jesus says, except in their own hometown, among their own people. Like, think about the weight Jesus lives with, knowing who he is and knowing that the crowds seem to recognize it. But the people who are closest to him, the people who he knows the best, who know him the best, who he loves the most, who are most important to him, most valued by him, those people, they don't see it. And he lives this way, waiting for them to recognize him for who he actually is for years, right? And people begin more and more throughout the, the time of Jesus' life. I mean, his entire life, there's this sense of, of anticipation. Like things are changing. People are beginning to recognize it. And then as it seems like Jesus is really about to break out, right? Everybody's going to see it. He's arrested. And he suffers a humiliating death. 
what kind of climax is that? Right? The story has been building to what? The Messiah is dead, right? Like that, that's where it comes to. It's another one of those moments where God's people feel like clearly either we've done something wrong or he's done something wrong. Either he's failed or we failed, but God has forgotten the promise. Somewhere along the way, something has gone wrong, right? Yet, this is the moment the whole of the gospel hinges on. A cross. Not some great miracle of Jesus, not some incredible sign, not some brilliant sermon. A humble cross is the thing that the whole tale hinges on. The kingdom of God spins on this axis of Jesus' self-giving love, his suffering, this humiliating death he dies, right? It all hinges on this. That's the moment where Jesus goes from being a prophet that nobody recognizes to being as the Roman centurion who's looking at him on the cross saying, surely this man was the son of God. It's the cross that allows that Gentile, non-believing, pagan Roman to recognize this man is the son of God. He's not just a, a delusional carpenter. He's more than, than what we've seen him as, right? And as we come to the table, there's that reminder over and over again. Like Every time we come to the table, we're coming to that moment that all of history hinges upon, the cross. We're coming back to this place where God is reversing everything in this world that feels so upside down. Where God is beginning to set right side up all that we see that is wrong, right? Where every threat against the kingdom of God is being undone, removed, that's why we do it every week. We come to this over and over again because the hope is that we'll begin to recognize it. The hope is that we'll begin to see it. Yeah, go ahead. I think a lot about it is, is I, as a person who's been hanging around here for 15 years, um, like first as a seminary student and then as guy leading worship and then as a pastor and as a father and as just a part of the community, like I think about all of these moments where it has felt like, you know, just so thoroughly ordinary, so anticlimactic. What could God be doing in this, right? There are these moments where it can just feel broken. Or there are these moments where it can just feel so overwhelming. And the hope is that if we keep coming to this table, if we keep worshiping together around it, I think we'll begin to recognize in this moment where God is reversing those things that we see that are so wrong with our lives and with this world, we'll begin to recognize all of these other moments in our lives where God is already doing that work of turning right side up what we see is so wrong in our lives and around us. The table offers us a clarity. It gives us vision to see that God is working in the moments that we just haven't recognized. That we cannot abandon the promise. We just have to wait. We have to learn what it is to be faithful with the small things as Jesus teaches. So that we can be given the greater things. So that we can be given the desires of our heart. God has not forgotten. He's just waiting. And he's asking us to wait. There's something far better that he has in mind than whatever it is we could scrounge together for ourselves. This is what we're invited into, and this is what I'd invite you into as you come to the table. Like considering all the places 
in your life where it feels that way, um, where, where maybe it feels like there's not much happening, where your life feels like it's at that anticlimactic moment. You thought it was going to be this, and it's, it's not. You thought something incredible was coming, and then it just it didn't live up to what you thought. And the story of Esther wants you to see God is working powerfully. There's this chain of things, this movement that is happening. You just haven't put the pieces together yet, but you will. Through sleepless nights and through really painful moments, right, God is going to help you put the pieces together so that you can see that he's been doing something in the midst of it all. That's the hope. If we just keep coming back to the table, if we keep coming back to these kinds of moments, to that humiliating cross, we'll begin to recognize God always is working in those places, the places that we forget and want to move beyond. Now let's pray. Father, we ask in these moments that you would um, help us and give us vision to see with clarity and stir us that's where the deepest kind of faith in the midst of these things. And walk with us through these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So feel free uh, in these moments. Uh, they're going to play a song, and you can come down either aisle, tear off a piece of bread, take a cup of juice, and then just move back toward your seats. Uh, and then as everybody's gone through, I'll, I'll come back up.